Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view, the people who work in the prison system would have another, and I think it's up to people to decide uh, where, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time Show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. This is Marissa and I'll be taking you through until 5 o'clock this evening. And it's approximately 4.01. And first up on the show, we're going to be speaking with Nicole Watson, who is the daughter of Uncle Sam Watson, who died on the 27th of November 2019, and he was very much loved. He was also a prominent activist and community leader. And we're going to be speaking with Nicole today about a mural that's been, like a portrait actually, that's been put up about Sam, and we'll talk to her about that. So we're going to be honouring the late Wangari Buddha and Biddy Gubberman, who really did a lot for the community and for Indigenous rights. Mr Watson was dedicated in his advocacy for the implementation of the findings of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody in the 1990s and also establishing um, a lot of voices in regards to the Invasion Day rallies. So we'll be talking about this beautiful mural that's, that's been created. It's... It's really, um, it was done by a, a prominent artist and Sam was very much loved on the Doin' Time show and he, we did a lot of interviews with him over the years and in fact, in 2019, just after he passed away, we did a, a, a cross-section of some wonderful interviews that he did. He just loved being near the microphone and Nicole will speak more about that. And then... After that, we'll be speaking with Tabitha Lean, who will speak about her lived experience of prison. Tabitha is a First Nations woman, who an activist, who has also been a regular contributor to this show. And then after that, we will speak to Tiffany Overall from Youth Law, and we'll be speaking with her about the push to raise Australia's minimum age of criminal responsibility for youth, and how youth are being criminalised in custody. And we will also talk to her about the pandemic and the effect that this is having on young people. 
And in fact, just a reminder to listeners, I'm sure you don't need to be reminded that we are now in stage four of the coronavirus restrictions. So now we'll go into an announcement and we will speak shortly with Nicole. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. And you're back with the Doing Time show. And we are now wanting to welcome Nicole. How are you, Nicole? Good, thank you. How are you? Welcome. Not bad, not bad. Nicole, you, I wanted to actually talk to you about about Sam and about um, your dad's, I suppose your, the portrait that they put up about your dad. Could you talk about that? Um, sure. So um, a wonderful artist called Warabar Weatherall, a Murray man from Queensland, uh, recently completed a, a mural that dedicated to dad in West End. Uh, West End was a very important place for dad it was very close to the Brisbane River, uh, what we call Mianjin, and uh, Dad loves spending time there. And uh, West End is a, a really uh, diverse and multicultural community. There's a very strong um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community there. Uh, it's home to Musgrave Park, which is a very important meeting place for our people. So it was, it was very fitting uh, that this mural uh, is in West End. It's really lovely, and it's, it's a wonderful memorial piece, isn't it, Nicole? It is, it is. Uh, so it's in a, a beautiful park in Vulture Street, uh, in, in the heart of West End, uh, and the mural is uh, taken from a photograph of Dad, and it's very clear that, that he's at a community rally and he's speaking in a microphone, uh, which is, is what Dad did. He spoke you know, very serious politics. Uh, that were important, not only for our community, but for the broader community. Absolutely. He did a lot, really. He was a very prominent figure and in more than five decades, isn't it, of Aboriginal activism? That's right. Uh, Dad started uh, being politically active when he was 16, when he headed out how to vote cards for the 1967 referendum. Uh, it didn't achieve all of the things that, that our elders wanted to achieve, but it it did lead to constitutional change so that the Commonwealth gained the power to make laws uh, in relation to our people and it made provision for the inclusion of our, our mob in the census. Um, and I think that that had a, quite a profound impact on Dad. Um, he, uh, he was also inspired by many elders in, in the movement as well, people like Ani um, Ujuru Nunakul and... Uh, yeah, he was he was politically active for uh, all of his adult life. He was also involved too in the original tent embassy in Canberra, isn't it? That's right. So Dad, uh, Dad was not one of the young men who um, originally uh, went there to to establish 
the embassy, but Dad, uh, Dad would go later in 1972, and uh, he would divide his time between Brisbane. Um, at the time, uh, my brother, well, my brother was uh, only a, a baby. I, I was yet to be born, uh, so Dad had a young family to look after. Um, but he was also very committed to supporting the embassy, so he divided his time between Brisbane and Canberra. It's pretty. It's it's really it's really um, amazing that this particular mural has, has kept it alive, hasn't it? Yeah, it's a really beautiful tribute to Dad. Um, I think he really captured the essence of, of who Dad was, um, and, and the physical similarities are, are really striking. How do you think your dad would have reacted to the pandemic? Um, dad would be very concerned about um, you know, making sure that, that no one was left behind. Um, I think that this pandemic has really exposed some awful, awful inequalities in, in our society. And uh, Dad would have been very angry about that. Um, yeah, he would have been inspired, though, by, by the Black Lives movement um, and how it's, it's gained momentum. Uh, and he would have been very proud of, of the young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people uh, you know, who have taken up the fight. Um, he would have been very moved by their passion um, yeah, and, and very proud. I'm, I'm finding it a little bit difficult to talk about him, to be honest. So imagine what it would be like yeah. with you as his daughter. So I, I really am honoured that you've come back onto the show, Nicole. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Dad, Dad often talked about your show. Um, he, he was very committed and he really enjoyed uh, spending time on, on your show. Yeah, he, he was sometimes on there at least once a week, once every two weeks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, call him up, I, I, and I'm sure he did a lot of other media as well. I don't think we were the only show, but I used to call him up and I'd say, Hey, Sam. Wow, something really atrocious has happened. Can you talk about it? And you say, no problem. What time? <laughs> yeah, that and, was Dad. Uh, and and he, he would be so... What I liked about your dad is that he he spoke a lot about history and he talked mm. a lot about topics that are severely neglected in the mainstream media. For example, he talked so much about the massacres for example, mm. you know, and and things that that were confronting to the government, he would talk about mm. that. And one of his favourite things that he would say, he would say, well, it's got to be talked about. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, Dad was, yeah. was always quite fearless. Very much so. What land are you from, Nicole? So our family are Mananjali. So Mananjali is uh, by desert in Queensland, really beautiful mountainous country. Um, and we're also Birigaba from uh, central Queensland. Um, but we, we spent uh, a great deal of our lives in just being a part of, of the um, Indigenous community of, of southeast Queensland. Um, we're very fortunate uh, to have uh, lots of aunties and uncles around us. Um, from that community. So where is the actual mural based? So it's in, where, where in a park in, yeah, in, in West End, in, in a park. It's actually on a wall of the park. Um, 
I, I unfortunately I, I haven't actually been up there myself. I, I live in Sydney, so because of the lockdown, I, I haven't been able to see it. Um, but but once the, the lockdown comes to an end, I, I certainly will go up. Yeah, it's really. I think it's really fantastic that that he's been honoured in this way by the artist. Yeah, I think the artist uh, Warabai Weatherall did a, a great job. That's fantastic. Do you have anything else you want to you want to add b- before we go, Nicole? Uh, no, I just thank you for inviting um, me on the show to, to uh, talk about Dad, and um, yeah, just. Sending my love um, out to, to the people of Victoria. Um, yeah, who are going through such a, a tough time at the moment. Um, you're in our hearts, and together, um, all of us will get through this. Absolutely, and, and I hope we we can all get through it. Although, I worry about people in prison and people that are homeless. Yeah, absolutely. Nicole, thank you so much yeah. for coming onto the program and um, keep up the good work. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Bye bye. Okay. Bye bye. Bye. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. And this is 3CR Community Radio Doing Time Show. And next up, we're going to be speaking with Tabitha Lean, who is involved in helping to establish a national network of criminalised women alongside Debbie Kilroy, who is is from Sisters Inside, and she actually founded this very, very special resource for women in prison. And we're going to be speaking with, to Tabitha about that. And also, um, she, she wrote an article for the Saturday paper, and we're going to be basing some of those things that she's talking about on that. Hello, Tabitha. Welcome to the program. Hello. Thank you for having me back. It's lovely to have you. Now, did you just want to start off um, telling listeners what land you're from? Certainly. I'm Gundi Chamara woman, but today I'm sitting on Ghana country. So I thank the elders, past and present, for allowing me to work and live in this. I'm really conscious that my ability to do the work in this country is leveraged off the dispossession of the Ghana people from their country. And it's something I think that we all need to be really conscious of wherever we are in this country because each part of it is stolen land. And that's why I asked that question because that's always so important. (laughs) And it's not Mm. about tokenism. You know, it's really just about, 
including that and using that as a foundation. Absolutely, absolutely. Tabitha, it's great to have you, and I'm, and I'm wondering if you could just start off talking about what's been going on with the network, this network of um, about Absolutely. women. Yeah, look, I'm really excited to talk about it. And Debbie and I had an article in the Saturday paper. She said, talking about elevating the voices of criminalised people in this country. So in early June, Debbie convened the very first meeting of criminalised women across this country they call Australia with a view to establishing a dynamic network of incredibly passionate women to drive our business our way for us. Um, due to COVID and us all being in different parts of the country, we met via Zoom, introduced ourselves, and I very quickly realised that we represented a real cross-section of criminalised women, different states, different nationalities, different convictions, different stories. And there was absolute strength in that difference. But there was also strength in the fact that we all had the same carceral experiences that created this kind of sisterhood. And um, while we may all have kind of different views on where to from here in terms of abolition, because some of those conversations are still to be had, we were all fairly resolute in making sure that any work we do as a network or any of our advocacy or activism would not support or extend the life or scope of the prison industrial complex. So while we can do the long-run work of abolition, we're also going to be considering strategies to reduce the suffering of those who are caged still for as long as incarceration exists. So what's the forum for that? Oh, sorry. That's it. I mean, that's the stuff that we're going to be working out because this is about us having a voice. This is not about us having a chair at someone else's table, but our own table. And it might just be a cheap fold-out picnic table, but it's going to be ours. And I think from it, it's going to come brilliant work, work that could change the face of punishment and justice in this country. Because the National Network created a collective voice for change, like a powerful network of women with shared experiences supporting each other to change their lives and change the system. Absolutely, and it's very important. And, in fact, I'm just having a look at the article that you sent me, and I'm very mm-hmm. interested in how you speak about the critical analysis of the structural and violent oppression of prisons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, look, um, the day I left prison was the day I decided I would spend the rest of my life tearing down the very system that had caged me. Um, right now in this country, there are men and women and children locked in cages during a pandemic and we've not seen one compassionate release of anyone in prison for the safety of themselves or the public. And um, I think if that's not an example of how this country relegates certain humans to being disposable, I don't know what is. But I, um, I think my focus the rest of my work will be on advocating for every single body that's criminalised in this country because I kind of think we're at this crucible moment in the country's history. We're seeing this kind of powerful and sustained condemnation of racism and carceral violence, and I think that's an uprising. And I think the call has never been louder to build a world in which the prison industrial complex is obsolete. So I think I want to spend my time working to make abolition of prisons a common sense goal you know I kind of want it to be an irresistible thing so I just keep raising my voice and I'm really appreciative of these kind of platforms to make 
imagining a world without prisons something that people can see as a reality because in my mind and the reality for my community is that the key to health, safety, stability and liberation has never and will never be found in punishment and imprisonment. How yeah. would you see a world to look without prison? Yeah. Look, I mean, I think that's the really big question. It's and not going. Really, yeah, I think that's the really exciting part about abolition is that, it, is that in as much as it is about tearing down a system, it's about building as well. It's about imagining alternatives, conceptualising new forms of justice, real justice. Because right now, we just view justice as retributive justice, as simply doing to the person who has committed a crime or done a harmful act, as doing to them the same things that they have done. And this call to vengeance is an impulse of the state and an impulse that we've internalised. And we begin to think that we will only feel better if we can make the person who hurt us feel the same way we do. Instead of asking ourselves, how can we make this relationship better? We ask how we can hurt them, and that keeps us in this infinite circle of not accomplishing anything. So I see abolition as an invitation to think about how we want to be in relationship with each other, with property, and with institutions. And I think it's about love and it's about care. And that sounds kind of all Pollyanna and a bit um, airy-fairy, but it's not. It's about how do we love people beyond who we want them to be. And I can't see how that's a bad concept. Like, it seems logical to me and it seems like a beautiful way to create a sense of community safety and well-being. But the specifics of it, that's all stuff we can all work out together. That's the exciting part. Absolutely. And I think it's wonderful that you've been working with Debbie Kilroy and other other women. But, you know, Tabitha, I wanted to really Mm. very briefly take Mm. this opportunity to just to let listeners know that and you, and you state this in your article, and I, I just think it's really cool where you say, and may I, may I have your permission to mm. quote from the article? Sure. In the survey paper, it, the article of the survey paper, and you say, my offending spanned two years according to police records. This means I have lived 42 very full and very worthwhile years, and I've had a distinguished career, multiple careers, in fact, and I've achieved an honours degree and started a master's program and I've been a volunteer in countless organisations, and I've raised three exceptional human beings who are also known as my kids. I'm a daughter, an auntie, a niece, a mother, a granddaughter. You know, and these things are not often said about mm. people in prison. Yeah. I, I'm, I do have... I've taken the liberty to state those things because I want listeners to see you other things. It's not just about the prison. Absolutely. It's as if my life now is divided into moments, pre-prison and post-prison, as if my conviction was the point of radical departure in my life. And, you know, maybe it was, I don't know. But the reality is I am so much more than the deviant that the colony constructs of me. Um, And I think it's... The the thing that kind of jars me continuously is this feeling of being permanently relegated to a subclass of human existence. Like, I never feel like I'm ever going to be just Tabitha again. I'm always going to be an ex-con, an ex-prisoner, formerly incarcerated woman. I'm never just me anymore. And um, 
it, it, that makes you feel like you're forever under the microscope. And I wonder just when we get to be an ordinary citizen contributing to community, because as I say in the article, people say do the crime, do the time. But that time never seems to end. Your criminal record stands for the rest of your life. And it, and it goes further than that. It affects your ability to get employed, to get insurance, to get housing. With a criminal record, you can't even sit on your kids' school committees. We are locked out of so many areas because of one worst thing that we have done in our lives. And I, I think that's extraordinary. And I, I don't think um, the rest of the community understand how extensive those collateral consequences of one conviction is. And I think that people forget that we are all those things that you, you read out. I am a mother. I'm a daughter. I'm you know, a proud community member. I'm a, I'm a range of things. Um, and even though I will dedicate my life to this work because it's so important to me, I am so much more than that. I'm also a writer. Like I, I like poetry and I paint and I do lots of different things. But, yeah, the system reminds you every single day that you are this one thing. You are one thing. And in early June, Debbie Kilroy, the Sisters Inside, she convened this first meeting of criminalised women. Yes. How, how did that feel to be part of that meeting? It was really empowering. I think it's really um, important for us to be in spaces where we are the majority as well. As a criminalised person, you feel like you stand out. In that meeting, I was just one of a group of people and hearing other women's stories and having your own stories sort of mirrored back at you, um, there was some sense of comfort in that, but there was also it fueled rage in me. It was like, gosh, this is happening to so many women. It's happening to not only my... Aboriginal brothers and sisters inside, but other women across the communities. And we're all having the same sorts of experiences. And I also realised just really how important it was for our voices to be heard because people, even if they're kind of um, in progressive politics, they really do not know what goes on behind those bars. And what we're seeing across, actually across the world in the abolition movement, and specifically in this country, we're seeing a kind of erasure of lived experience voices. So as abolition is gaining momentum and it's becoming the preeminent demand of the movement, what we're seeing is other people speaking for us. And the whole idea of this national network was to say, actually, nothing about us without us. We will have a voice about these matters because we are experts in our own oppression. And we are Absolutely. the people who should be driving the change. And we welcome everyone to come along with us, but we need to be driving this. Absolutely. And how can how can other women who do have a lived experience of prison find out about this meeting? Or is this just something that's early for now? Look, it is very early in its formation, but I would encourage anyone else who has lived incarceration experience to perhaps make contact with sisters inside and be put on the list for the next meeting. And I'm at the moment we're working out the kind of values of the, the group. So we're really consistent in what we're saying and going forward. And um, Debbie's been really organised in pulling this together in a way that sets us up for the long term. So it's not just a kind of flash-in-the-pan group, but it's actually going to be an organised coalition of women to raise their voice across the system. Um, so absolutely, we would love people to get involved. And, and people who are not criminalised, I think this is also a really exciting moment for you all too because you get to have front row seats to an uprising of women who are 
going to drastically change the face of justice in this country and contribute to the international abolition movement as well. So I think there's a role for everyone to play. I keep talking about the idea of abolition. You've got to constantly make room in this movement for people to join at the point that they're ready to, because for some people, the whole idea of abolishing the police or abolishing prisons is really quite a confronting thing for them. And I think we have to make space for them to come to that awareness that this is, this is achievable. This is something that we can do. But we need this kind of continued and sustained action, not just when it becomes a hashtag or a social media thing. You know, Black Lives Matter always, as an example, not just for a moment. And it's the same thing in the abolition movement. Like, you can't be standing with us and saying abolishing, abolish prisons one day and then the next day advocating for people who jump the borders during a pandemic to be imprisoned. It doesn't work like that. You need to be consistent. That's the only way that this movement is going to gain any traction and see any sort of reality in this country. Absolutely. And I would like listeners to get access to this article. How, how can they do that? Certainly, you can go to the Saturday paper. If you just sort of Google the Saturday paper, Tabitha Lane, it will bring up the article. Um, you can access it for free. You just have to input your email to unlock the rest of the article, um, or I'm happy for people to contact me. I'm on Twitter and Instagram, and I'm happy to send through the article to them. Um, my it really Twitter is, handle is, yeah. Yeah, right. it's, a, it's, it's a really informative article, and mm-hmm. it, it largely discusses, I mean, there's a lot that's been discussed, but it largely discusses how People, like, you have to be so nice all the time that Mm. academics will only allow you to have a voice if it suits them or if it suits Mm. that category. And Debbie Kilroyd also made made a comment about required to be nice. Mm. She's Mm. required to have built up a store Mm. of niceness to be allowed to occasionally express her legitimate anger. Yes. And yourself too. Like it's like women in prison um, are often deprived of a voice. And if you're Aboriginal, forget it. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, look, and in the article I talk about this idea of the perfect offender. And and I talk about that in the context of the conditions that seem to be arbitrarily set for us to determine the validity of a lived experience voice. So I, I see that the elevation of my voice in some forms depends on on certain things. So it depends on your type of offending. It, it, it's absolutely conditional on your desistance. And they, they've constructed this idea of a perfect offender. And I, I talk about it in detail in the article, but essentially they like people who are quiet persons, perhaps who stumbled aimlessly or mischievously into crime, and it always has to be a petty crime and definitely always a non-violent offence. They like a hard luck story. They want a really hard childhood, maybe an addiction thrown in. Um, They want women to have been a victim at some point, particularly if we're black. They want us to have an overcoming the odds epic tale. They like a corrected, reformed, contrite, apologetic and as you said, they want us softly spoken and articulate. And we cannot be angry, especially if we're a black woman. We cannot be angry. We can't swear and we can't curse. They just want this perfect, polite and unthreatening picture of criminality and, I guess, more so rehabilitation. 
And I think what I find most tough is when this kind of support is coming from people, organisations and media that say they support criminalised mobs, but only if we meet the terms and conditions they attach to us. And I well, say that's not that going to happen they... anymore. No, that's right, because when they cherry-pick their perfect defender, they're supporting and upholding the same dehumanising elements that are so entrenched in this punishment system. They're taking a political position that inherently supports the injustice of the colony. And that's what this national coalition is about saying. We are not products or services or hashtags or the latest trend. We're human beings trying to make good in the world. So we need people to hear us and see us beyond expecting us to constantly educate them for a place of pain or trauma. So Absolutely. I'm this coalition gives us that strength to kind of raise our voice and also allows us to share that kind of burden and sorrow and exhaustion across all our tired and battle-weary shoulders. Mm. It's very true, and it's, it's all about transformative justice in Australia. Unfortunately, mm. Tabitha, we're going to have to leave it there because we've got yes. Tiffany Overall coming up soon from Youth Law, awesome. and she's awesome. going to be talking about um, the, that youth and pushing up the criminal responsibility. Fantastic. Look, thank you for having me on. Always good to speak to you, Martha. It's great to have you, Tabitha, and I'm hoping we can have you back very soon. Brilliant. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Don't be nice. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Hey, all you mob, it's Dr Mark Winnetong here. Coronavirus has certainly changed the way we live, work and connect. These changes can be hard for some of us and can make us feel no good in our head or spirit, like sad or worried all the time. Some of us might already be dealing with other things like sickness, trauma, and this can make it really hard for us to feel good about anything at the moment. If you're feeling like this, remember, it's okay to ask for help. Have a yarn to someone you trust, like your family or an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health worker. You can also call Beyond Blue, Lifeline or the Kids Helpline to talk to someone or look at some helpful information at headtohealth.gov.au on the internet. A 3CR supporter. And you're back with the Do and Time show. And coming up, we have Tiffany Overall from Youth Law. And as I said in my introduction at the beginning of this show, we'll be speaking with her about criminalised youth in custody, but also about um, the push to raise the criminal, the criminal age to, for young people. Hello, Tiffany. Welcome to the program. Yeah, hi, Marissa. Thanks very much for the invite. And very, very different circumstances. This is we're in the middle of a pandemic, on stage four restrictions. You actually came to did many interviews with us some years ago now, and what a change, isn't it? Uh, it's incredible. I mean, it feels like enormous changes just within the last week, let alone in a within a number of years. It's just yeah, hard to wrap our heads around, but here we are. Absolutely. So I can imagine. Well, I, I can't imagine what this would be like. For our youth in this country, and in particular Aboriginal youth, well, all youth really, can you mm. talk about some of the issues that are facing youth in the pandemic? Uh, it's hard to know where to start, Marissa. It's a, it's a myriad, yeah. isn't it, really? I mean, um, for those young people living in community, um, you know, there's the challenges within their homes, depending on their family situation and um, relations within that 
to you know how safe they're feeling, uh, how supported they're feeling, where their mental health is at. Um, you know, not being able to reach out and spend time with their peers and get those sort of normal supports. Um, and uh, you know, that's for those that are with family. And then obviously, there's a whole cohort of young people that we would normally see at youth law that aren't living with family that might be living on the streets, couch surfing, living in refuges, not safe for them to be with family or they've had breakdown of family relations and then it's you know, it's it's all the challenges presented for them to to be fully aware of, adhering to uh all the stay at home um restrictions yeah. at the moment, uh, let alone all the challenges for keeping afloat financially, uh keeping Absolutely. safe you know, so yeah, and obviously, then you know, the young people we're also very, very aware of that um, are in detention at the moment too, and so um, that's also a very challenging space. Um, you know, obviously, government and youth justice um, within the Department of Justice are trying to manage their facilities as safely and as best they can, but obviously, you know, we we do also have um, concerns for how. Young people are tracking in those in those spaces. I imagine they'd be very frightened, and and, and really, is it is it hygienic in there? Look, I think um, from what I understand, and and you know, I haven't visited the facilities myself in this time, um, uh, but we we do hear we we do get fairly regular updates from both Youth Justice, and um, we do hear from. Players like Liana Buchanan, the um, Children's Commissioner, and, and the suggestion is that they have taken enormous steps to keep um, the facilities incredibly hygienic and clean. So they've ramped that up um, enormously. Um, they, they do have a very strict sort of management plan in place. Um, they are trying their utmost to. Uh, keep the young people in the facilities sort of connected to the outside world as best they can, even though at the moment, obviously, they're not getting any visits from from family or external services. Um, uh, you know, they've got them using all sorts of technology that previously they might not have had access to in youth detention, um, trying, to, trying to, you know, keep them engaged and, and um, occupied. But, yeah, I mean, you know, and I, and I think from what I understand, the young people are... Uh, being very, um, you know, understanding of the circumstances, very, very flexible, trying to be very tolerant. But I think, you know, you would have to appreciate we've all, you know, got our limits and they've, they've you know, only allowed very limited uh, time to exercise or get fresh air in, in some contexts. And, yeah, it's, it's incredibly difficult. I, I can't quite imagine. But, um, you know, I think Absolutely. everyone's trying to do their best to support them. We're hoping so, and hopefully there won't be there won't be any cases in there. But which leads me to my next point. So, youth advocates have been lobbying the Australian governments to raise the minimum age of criminal responsibility for young people. Can um, you comment on that? Yes, I um, I can. So, I think it it still um, shocks um, some people. I mean, many of our listeners may already know, but that at the moment in Australia, a, a child as young as 10 can be um, charged uh, 
criminally and processed criminally. Um, and that's, that age is, is in our mind far too low for a whole range of reasons that I'm happy to talk about, but sure. um, it, it doesn't adhere to um, basically best practice internationally. Most other jurisdictions across the world, uh, that, that age is higher. Um, in some jurisdictions it's 12, in some jurisdictions it's 14, in some it's 16. It's um, And we've had the United Nations comment on this a number of times, but most, most recently the Committee on the Rights of the Child has said um, it should be the age of criminal responsibility should be at least 14. Um, that's in their recommendation. And that children under 16 should not be held in detention. And so Australia's just not in any way complying with those sorts of international human rights standards. Um, but, but, but worse than that, I mean, I think what concerns so many in Australia, is, is the harm being done to these children. We, we all, I think, can agree that the right place for a child is with family, if at all possible, in community, engaged in schools, you know, supporting them to, to reach their full potential, uh, not, not in prisons. Um, and there's, there's all sorts of medical science that also come in behind this call to raise the age. I mean, we hear time and time again from, from medical researchers that children 13 years and under are not at the cognitive level of development where they may be able to fully appreciate, you know, the criminal nature of their actions. Um, and so, you know, they have different, they're different in terms of adults, in terms of their emotional and mental capacity. And, and for that reason, they need to be and should be required to be treated very differently. Um, so hopefully many listeners have heard recently that um, this campaign's gone national. You know, there's a Raise the Age national campaign now um, calling on all state and territory governments to, to raise the age across the country. Uh, and um, I think we've got a lot of work ahead of us, but uh, but we aren't going anywhere. <laughs> we've just got started. Wow. So what's this campaign about, Tiffany? I mean, yeah, what's what well, your contribution to that? Yeah, so, um, so Youth Law, uh, my role at Youth Law, uh, part of what I have done for a number of years is, is convene... Um, a youth justice advocacy coalition, um, and that's called Smart Justice for Young People. And so in Victoria, that, that includes members of well over 50 social service organisations, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander groups, health, legal, youth advocacy, etc., um, academic experts, all working collaboratively in that space. And, and one of our campaigns uh, is, is to raise the age in Victoria. And then basically now we are aligning with similar groups um, across the country doing similar sorts of work to, to, to commence this um, national campaign. Um, it's been led by a coalition of... Nationally, it's been led by a coalition of legal, medical and social justice organisations, um, which, which include the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Services, the um, 
Human Rights Law Centre, the Law Council Australia, Amnesty, Australian Medical Association. Um, I've missed some, but that gives you a flavour of the all yeah, coming no, together. So yeah. we're we're playing our role here in Victoria to support that campaign because obviously, um, you know, a national campaign is wonderful. It gives us a lot of leadership and and key messaging that we can all use and is having the conversation with federal government, but we need to maintain the pressure and build on the groundswell of support here in Victoria. We need to go and have the conversations with our ministers, um, members of parliament here in Victoria to convince them why, you know, they need to change the laws and raise the age from 10 to 14 or at minimum of 14 Um so we, we want to support and we will continue to support that national campaign here in Victoria. I mean, the minimum age of, of criminal responsibility in Australia is 10, isn't it? Yes, and the United Nations Committee that you're talking about on the rights of the child actually mm. recommended 14 years as the minimum age of criminal responsibility just last year, isn't it? That's correct. That is correct, yes. And so that just gave us more fuel... <laughs> You know, I mean, previously they'd said 12 and last year, you're right, they said 14. Um, and so, you know, we just think it's time. It's time um, for the Australian governments to acknowledge that. It's time for them to act on it. Um, you know, I mean, we're talking about up to about 1,600, you know, children under 14 a year being held at various times in youth detention. Um, and that that is creating a very poor um, trajectory for those young people on the whole um, because we know, again, from experience and from research that the younger a young person hits the criminal justice system, the more likely they are to re-offend as an older young person and to be entrenched in the system as an adult. That's, we know that. So doesn't it make a lot of sense on so many levels to to invest and support young people um, displaying, you know, um, offending-like behaviours to to do whatever we can to wrap around them to address that at that point to keep them out of the system and so that they don't have a future of, you know, um, caught up in the criminal justice system. It just, on so many levels, it seems to be common sense. Um, and Indeed. yet we're not quite there. Indeed, we're not quite there, and I'm wondering whether some of these policies are somewhat outdated, given that when Australia was first colonised, you had children as young as 10 or even as young as 8 who mm. were brought out here as convicts just for stealing a loaf of bread or a banana. Yeah, yeah, that's you, interesting. You know, I hadn't thought about the longevity of some of these policies. You're right. I mean, Yeah, um, it's very much out of date, isn't it? And we need mm. to really look at our history and make sure that history isn't repeated itself, you know, doesn't repeat mm. itself. And mm. in fact, you know, the criminal justice system really needs an overhaul. And mm. in fact, there was a report in 2019 which, by the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare which mm. found that on any given night in Australia, just over half, 53% of all young people in detention were Indigenous. I know. It's, it's, uh, it's appalling. It's, uh, you know, it's shameful. 
um, you know, that's and that's obviously a key focus of this campaign is that it's believed by, that by raising the age is, is a major step towards addressing the overrepresentation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children in the in the system. It's it's crucial. I mean, in so many Indigenous organisations are heading up and driving this call to raise the age. They they see it as crucial. We're coming in behind it because we also think it's very important. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just it cannot continue. There's been so many um, uh, inquiries and um, reports yes, yes. that just keep reminding us of this brutal reality of the overrepresentation, and yet we just don't see action to to address it. And it's um, and basically, I I personally believe that you know we as Australian citizens just can't let our governments off the hook on this. We just have to persist. Um, we, we have to hold them accountable. Um, you know, we have to raise our voices and, and stand with these young people. Absolutely. And, and in fact, would you say that children, if, if the criminal age is raised, which I hope it is, would mm. you say that there's more of a chance to intervene before children become grossly institutionalised and then there can be more investment in prevention, rehabilitation and community-based programs mm, instead mm. of, a, of a, punitive, a punitive approach, which is failing. Yes. No, that's that's exactly uh, the basis, I suppose, of the alternative model um, that we would be encouraging, you know, states and territories um, to kids under 14. Just as you described it, we're looking at a... Uh, alternate response that provides the appropriate support for these young people to hopefully, um, you know, address some of their their needs or the drivers of their behaviour or their family circumstances early. Let's get in there early and uh, invest wisely and get in early and hopefully um, avoid them, you know, hitting the system later in life. And yet, what sort of government have people voted in when the Federal Attorney-General believes that the current system is working well? In November last year, Tiffany, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but Federal Attorney-General Christian Porter said mm. that he was not overly enthusiastic about the reform <laughs> but acknowledged the view of states and territories may differ. I mean... Yes, yes, very disappointing. Seriously. Very disappointing. Yeah, no, very disappointing. And obviously, you know, post those comments, there's been uh, a lot of reach out and um, um, requests for meetings with, um, yeah, AG Porter to try and try him to get to understand. It's just, it just for me, it just showed a complete uh, lack of understanding of of what we were calling for and the potential benefits of it. But you know, he's not alone. There's, there is some other. Um, you know, government representatives in other states and territories also yes, that are a bit reticent to, to 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 introduce it. And look, I think it's largely political um, in terms of their resistance, and and also maybe they keep they keep pushing back, saying it's because they don't know what the alternative looks like. They're saying, well, what if a thirteen year old commits a serious offence, and and how 
how are you going to respond? You know, are they going to be just let off the hook? Is there going to be some consequences? You know, and and again, I think it just misses misses the point. It misses um, the point. Yeah, because because you know, and, and I I suppose I'm not trying to be negative here. I'm mm. really talking a lot about the, some of the barriers that we're yep. facing and, and really looking at the voting trends in our society here, mm. you know, where, mm. where they say, in my personal observation, historically there have been instances where it is appropriate to prosecute people who've been under the age of 14 for very mm. serious mm. offences. But, I mean, mm. how do you do that? And do, and do we need to do that in a more humane manner where there are culturally appropriate programs to support... Um, young people of all ages. Yeah, no, I, I think that that is the way forward. It, it on the whole, it it should not be, you know, a, a punitive response because we know that won't get to the heart of dealing effectively in addressing problematic behaviours. Um, we know that therapeutic. Um, developmentally, culturally appropriate responses are much more effective than punitive responses. Um, and we do have some great um, examples across Australia of programs that benefit kids in those spaces. So we're not we're not saying to government get get rid of the criminal justice system and and you no, are, no, no. and there's a hole that we don't know how to respond. We actually do know as a, as a society how to respond to these children. We do know how to wrap around and provide extensive, um, intensive therapeutic support to these children. We're, we're already doing it. We're just not doing it in a collaborative, um, integrated whole of government response. You know, so we just need we just need some leadership on this. We just need um, whether it's just even just initially one state or territory just to say put up the hand and say yes. We agree in principle this is exactly what we have to do. Yes, we have to work out the detail of how we're going to make it happen, but let's just commit to it, strive for it, work with the sector, work with police, work with government to make it happen. It's it's not beyond us. It's really, really doable. Um, and it's just, it, it is just frustrating um, that at that, that this point um, we've, we've still got some work to do. Indeed, and if listeners are interested, you might want to have a look at ABC iView because there was mm. a documentary that follows a 10-year-old Aboriginal boy um, who was almost sent to prison and goes on to make a speech to the United Nations about youth incarceration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Joanne, yeah, brilliant. It's, um, what, what's it called? In My Blood It Runs. Is that what it's called? Yeah, In My Blood It Runs. It's, I recommend it highly to listeners if they haven't already caught it, um, you'll fall in love with him. Um, and then the fact that he goes on and does such brilliant advocacy uh, on behalf of his community is just is just awe-inspiring. Um, so, yeah, definitely please watch that. And I'd also make another call out, if I could, if you are interested, yep. is that um, the National Raise the Age campaign I've been um, talking about, they've got a pretty nifty website put together um, and they've got a petition they're asking people to sign and so um, just a bit of a call to arms if you're interested, if you haven't already, to sign the petition. Um, okay. And you just go to um, 
it's just www.raisetheage.org.au and you'll see it pretty clearly there. And it's a great website generally if you just want to read up on, on the issues and why we're making this call, but also great to to do something really you know, constructive and proactive and sign a petition as well. Tiffany, thank you so much for coming onto the program. It was a bit intense, but it did have to be talked about. <laughs> yeah, no, thanks so much, Marissa, for the opportunity. It's much appreciated. Yes, indeed, and and we've I think we've been very successful in in providing a voice for for you know uh, our most vulnerable. Yes, yeah, and proud of you for doing that. We yeah, keep keep up the amazing work. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. Bye-bye. Isolated? Quarantined? Need some essentials but can't leave the house? Or just having a hard time dealing with everything at the moment? Queer Aid NAM is a new mutual aid group of organised volunteers. We're here, we're queer, and we've got your back. Whether or not that's how you identify... Nobody should be suffering because capitalism or the state didn't provide what they needed. That's why we're working to strengthen our communities through solidarity. Put in a request for help and we'll match you with a volunteer in your area who can either pick up groceries or other essentials for you, help you run errands, cook meals for you, or check in with how you're going. If you or someone you know is having a hard time, or if you want to join the volunteer list, Find us on QueerAidMelbourne.org or search for us via Facebook, COVID-19 QueerAidNAM Melbourne. So tell your family and your friends and don't forget your neighbours. That's QueerAidMelbourne.org, a 3CR supporter. And we've just neared the end of our show. It's goodbye from Marissa and would stay tuned every Monday from 4 or 5 for the Doing Time show. Thanks for our, our guests' contributions to the show today. And it's Beyond Zero up next. And we're going out now with our theme song, Black Fella, White Fella from the Rorumpy Band. Bye-bye. As long as you are true fella, as long